Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. People came and asked him, Why do John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, The wedding guests cannot fast while the groom is with them, can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast. But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new patch pulls away from the old cloth, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins. The, skin, the wine is lost as well as the skins. No new, wine is no new wine is put into fresh wineskins. On the Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to make their way, picking some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David and those who were with him did when he was in need and hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of presence, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priest, and also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. So then, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a shriveled hand. In order to accuse him, they were watching him closely to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. He told the man with the shriveled hand, stand before us. Then he said to them, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent. After looking around at them with anger, he was grieved at the hardness of their hearts, and he told the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Immediately the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him how they might kill him. This is the word of God. You may sit down. So what happens when someone dares to challenge the system? I'll ask the question again. What happens when someone dares to challenge the system? The system often retaliates. In the 14th century, a man named John Huss came to grasp the biblical doctrine of sola scriptura. He argued that the Pope was not in ultimate authority. He also argued against the indolences of the day, and he preached the Bible in the people's vernacular. Well, what happened to a man who challenged the religious system of the day? It did not go well for him. In 1415, he was deemed a heretic and burned at the stake. His final words are very famous. They were really prophetic. And he said this. He said, you may roast the goose. That's himself. But a hundred years from now, a swan will arise who's singing, you will not be able to silence. Who was that swan? Martin Luther. A hundred years, uh, almost a hundred years later, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to a church wall in Wittenberg, Germany. Well, what happened to this German monk 
who, like Huss, challenged the religious system of the day? Well, he was issued a papal bull by Pope Leo X. And you know what he did with that papal bull? He went out in the public and he burned it. It did not go well for Luther either. The Pope excommunicated from the church and Luther had to go into hiding. Huss and Luther courageously challenged the religious system of the day. And hear me, the system struck back. What happens when the most significant man in the history of the world challenges the religious system of his day? Well, our text gives us that very answer. In Mark chapter 2, verse 18 to chapter 3, verse 6, Jesus will stand in complete opposition to the Pharisees, who were the watchmen and protectors of first century Judaism. They had built a system that gave them acclaim and authority. And not surprisingly, the more Jesus preached against their system, the more the Pharisees' hearts were hardened and the more their desire grew to strike back. It did not take long for the Pharisees to retaliate. At the end of our text this morning, a strategy was set in place to put Jesus to death. The Pharisees were determined to keep their religious system in the place of authority. Jesus challenged them, and they continued to strike back. Well, I have three points coming from our text this morning. Jesus challenged their system. Jesus challenged their Sabbath. And Jesus challenged their self-righteousness. So Jesus challenged their system. He challenged their Sabbath, and he challenged their self-righteousness. Now, to give you a little context before we dive in, up to this point in the book of Mark, we really have already witnessed what it means that the kingdom of God is at hand. God's redemptive rule and reign has arrived. Recreation is at hand. A new exodus is here. The reverse of the curse are being, the, the effects of the curse are being reversed. The king has come to set up his kingdom. And we see that the effects truly are glorious. Demons are driven out. Lepers have been healed. The lame walk. Diseases healed. And we saw with the paralytic that a man's sins were forgiven. The kingdom of God is spreading, but not without opposition, especially from the religious leaders of the day. Jesus constantly challenged their man-made religious structures because it was keeping people from entering the kingdom of God. Jesus' teaching was not going to fit with their system. Something had to go. Something had to give. The kingdom of God and the Pharisee system could not coexist. So to our first point this morning, Jesus challenges their system. Look with me at verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. People came and asked him, why do John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast, but your disciples do not fast? Well, I think first we must ask ourselves about verse 18 and specifically about the sincerity of their question. Did these people sincerely desire to know why Jesus' disciples didn't fast? Or was there a type of maliciousness behind the question? If we just look at this text, we actually do not know. But I think if we see where this text is sandwiched, it gives us a clue. So the two accounts become f that come before this text, 
these Pharisees are in opposition to Jesus. And the two accounts that come after this text is the very same thing. These Pharisees are in opposition to Jesus. So I think the way that Mark placed this is showing us that these people's question is not sincere. There's actually a maliciousness behind the question. There's this judgmentalness behind this question. Jesus' authority has been called into question. Well, in this account, some people came to Jesus not asking if the disciples were fasting, but why did his disciples not fast like those of John the Baptist or the Pharisees? As we talked about in my last sermon, the Pharisees were a group of people who considered themselves righteous as they prioritized the outward performance of the law. It was a heartless form of religion that sought to exalt themselves above everyone else. And even here in this text, we kind of get a glimpse of it because the Torah only commanded the people to fast one time, and that was on the Day of Atonement. That was the only prescribed fast. But in Jesus' day, to fast was a sign of religious commitment. If you were serious about the Torah then you were a people that fasted. The text gives us proof of this. Who exactly questioned Jesus? Well, it was the general public. Everyone understood that fasting was a sign of religious commitment. Now, please hear me. There was nothing wrong with fasting itself. Fasting showed someone's contrition over sins their desire to seek God's help, and it boasted one's prayer life. Fasting is a great discipline. However, the Pharisees had made it a means by which they paraded their religious commitment before everyone else. And Jesus really alluded to this in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, whenever you fast, don't be gloomy like the hypocrites. That's the Pharisees and the scribes. For they make their faces unattractive so that their fasting is obvious to the people. You see, Jesus' comments on fasting in the Sermon on the Mount are really confirmed in this very passage. The people noticed that the disciples of the Pharisees were fasting. That's exactly what the Pharisees wanted. They wanted to be seen for their devotion, a devotion that glorified themselves. Well, I want to make one observation from verse 18. False piety loves to be seen by others. False piety loves to be seen by others. False piety is anything we do outwardly for the purpose of self-exaltation. Anything we do outwardly for the purpose of self-exaltation. Right when Christ saved me, I was blessed to go on a number of different mission trips and interact with a number of different ministry organizations and Y'all might remember, maybe they still do it today, but it's like every ministry organization had these little bracelets, their rubber bracelets that had their kind of um, name on them. And so every ministry organization or country that I interacted with, I would get a rubber bracelet and I would put it on. And about after two years, those bracelets started to pile up. And as they kept piling up, you literally could not even see my left arm. They were all up on my left arm. And as I look back on that, the first thing I think about is, I thought I was cool, but I looked really stupid. <laughs> I looked really dumb. 
But even more than embarrassment, I look back in sadness because I wore those bracelets to be seen as a godly guy who loved the nations. In my mind, those bracelets displayed and proved my righteousness before others. Friends, this is exactly how the Pharisees used fasting. They went above and beyond what was required of them, fasting two times a week so that their righteousness might be displayed before others. They wanted everyone to see that they were, in fact, most religious, and they were, in fact, worthy of praise and adoration. Well, Christ Fellowship, I don't think I have to convince you that our hearts are prone to wander. Our hearts are prone to be exalted by the things that we do, even the things that we do for the Lord. It might not be bracelets or fasting for you, but my question is, what is it? What are the things that you do so that others might marvel at your righteousness? It might be answering questions in community group or Bible study. Not so much to be helpful so that people marvel at your theological acuity. It, it might be the way your kids act or have memorized their catechism. You love to show them off before others because it makes you look so good. It might be the number of Bible studies you attend, the money that you give, the way you serve the church, or the different ministries that you interact with. Now, you might be asking the question right now, how do I know if I'm doing righteous deeds to be seen by others? I think try observing your reaction when nobody notices those actions, when nobody comments on your kids, when nobody says, wow, you really answered that question really well. Friends, if we get a bit frustrated or perturbed, that might mean we're much more like the Pharisees than we initially thought. I can speak from experience that this self-righteousness, it's like a cancer. It turns you inward and it sucks all the joy away from you. I do understand that our motivations will never be completely pure. But we surely can move into a place where our actions are entirely stained for the desire of self-glory. And I want to say if I just describe you, if you're sitting in conviction right now, number one, join the club. And number two, repent before the Lord. Repent before the Lord. He promises that he will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He promises that he will renew a right spirit in you. I think this sin specifically is a secret sin that we tend not to talk about. It's something that we tend not to confess. So I would encourage you, if you are struggling with this, to confess to a brother or sister that they might help you fight this very sin. Because it is sucking away your joy in the Lord. Well now, the presupposition behind the question in verse 16 is why Jesus' disciples are not following the religious system of the day. Why are you not following God like the Pharisees? Well, Jesus replies with two metaphors. Look with me at the first metaphor in verses 19 through 20. Jesus said to them, the wedding guests cannot fast while the groom is with them, can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast. But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them. And then 
they will fast on that day. His point is simple. If you understood the moment, you would not be fasting, but you would be feasting. If you understood the moment, you would not be fasting, but you would be feasting. It's interesting that this account comes right after the account of Jesus feasting with sinners and tax collectors. What were Jesus' followers doing when they were at Levi's house? Well, they were feasting. What are the Pharisees doing right here? They're depriving themselves of food. The disciples of Jesus feast, but the disciples of the Pharisees are famished. That's the point of Jesus' metaphor of the bridegroom and the wedding guest. This past week, Kelsey's brother attended a destination wedding in Paris, and the wedding lasted a whole entire week. I think in our 21st century minds, we might see that as a bit excessive, but in the first century, weddings lasted about a week. It was a celebration that involved eating and drinking. It was there for people to celebrate. Nobody in the first century would start fasting on a wedding day like none of us are going to start fasting this Thursday on Thanksgiving. That's absurd, right? It's a moment to eat. It's a moment to fellowship. It's a moment to celebrate. Well, this metaphor has a point. Jesus is the groom and his disciples are the wedding guests. If you're familiar with your Old Testament, you might even be thinking about passages where Jesus refers to himself as a husband, Israel's husband. Isaiah 54, 5 says, Indeed, your husband is your maker. His name is the Lord of armies, and the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. And Jesus referring to himself as the groom, he's signaling to everyone that he is in fact God. And Jesus is calling people to think through the uniqueness of the moment. The Son of God is on earth. God is in the very midst of you. It's absurd to think about depriving yourself when God has arrived. It's not a time of mourning, but it's a time to celebrate, like wedding guests would celebrate a groom and bride. But then Jesus shocks everyone in verse 20. It's not the wedding guests that leave the house, it's who? It's the groom that's taken away. The time will come when the groom will be taken away from them and they will fast on that day. Jesus, in verse 20, really predicts his death for the very first time, saying that the bridegroom will be taken away. He's really hearkening back to Isaiah 54. The suffering servant will be taken away because of the oppression and judgment he will be cut off from the land of the living. The king is here with his kingdom, but in order to defeat sin, death, and Satan, Jesus must be taken away. And on that day, Jesus' disciples will fasting, seeking him for strength and guidance. Well, Jesus switches the metaphor in verses 21 through 22. Look with me there. No one which is obvious to everyone sitting in this room, right? No one sews a patch of untruck cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new patch pulls away from the old cloth and a worse tear is made. And no one, again, obviously nobody would ever do this, puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins. And the wine is lost as well as the skins. No 
new wine is put into fresh wineskins. So no one would ever sew a patch, a new patch on an old garment. Why is that? Because when they would wash the clothes, the garment would shrink. So if you put a new patch on an old garment, that new patch would shrink and would ultimately tear the garment. And nobody would ever put new wine into an old wineskin. That's probably pretty obvious. I don't think I have to even explain that. I'm, ki- I'm kidding. It's not obvious at all because we're not in the first century. But these wineskins were made out of leather. And so when wine was in them, they would stretch and become very brittle. But if you put new wine into an old wineskin, well, then that new wine would cause it to stretch even more. And that old wineskin wouldn't be able to handle it. So new wine had to go into new wineskin. The old wineskins were so stretched, they couldn't handle any of the new wine. And this metaphor really is a harrowing critique of the religious system of the day. I want you to hear me. Jesus is not condemning the Old Testament. Jesus is not condemning the Torah. He's condemning their distortion of the Torah. Your your religious system is broken. And it's obvious to all who have eyes to see. You find yourself fasting when in reality you should be feasting. Unless you toss out this man-made religious system, it will be impossible for you to receive the kingdom of God. Just like those stretched out wineskins. You have been so stretched by your religious system of self-justification that there is no room for Jesus and the kingdom. It's interesting when you think about the Pharisee Nicodemus coming to Jesus in the middle of the night. And what does Jesus tell him? He says twice, you must be born again. You must be born again to inherit the kingdom of God. You must be born again to see the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying something very similar here. You're not going to be able to receive the kingdom in your old wineskins, in your old ways, in your old system. You need something new, and you cannot provide that. Only God can. And so if you are an unbeliever here this morning, we welcome you. We're thankful that you're here. Your system that you're using, whatever it might be, to find joy, to find life, this text says it's ultimately going to fail. The only way that you can find joy and life, the only way that you can receive the kingdom of God, is by God making you new. And that's what we're praying for you this morning. That you would understand the gospel. That you would understand that you're lost that you need Jesus as a Savior, that God has sent His Son to die for you. And if you repent and believe, you can receive Him. You will have life. But you need to be born again for that to happen. And we're praying that it would. Well, the very heart of the Pharisees' entire system, it was the Sabbath. And to undermine their views on the Sabbath was to undermine the entire system. Jesus does not hold back either. He challenges their Sabbath, but he does it in such a way that really might surprise you. To our second point, Jesus challenges their Sabbath. Look with me at verses 23 through 24. On the Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to make their way, picking some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. 
Here's a new account of opposition that centers around the Sabbath. Two things really set Jewish people apart from the rest of the world. What were they? One was circumcision and the other was the Sabbath. You see, the Sabbath started on Friday at dusk and it ended 24 hours later on Saturday. And it wasn't optional to observe either. It was really tethered to their Jewish heritage. If you were a Jew, you would rest on the Sabbath. Now, you might be wondering to yourself, well, where did the Sabbath originate? Well, the Sabbath was the fourth command given to Israel at Mount Sinai. Its importance is really indicated by its length. It's the longest command that God gives. Israel was commanded to consecrate the Sabbath. It was a specific time that belonged to Yahweh. So the whole 24 hours would be devoted to him. God created the world in how many days? Six. And he did what on the seventh? He rested. That's exactly right. Stephen Wellham helpfully explains the significance of the Sabbath as tied to God's rest on the seventh day. He said, God's work of creation was complete. It was finished. No one could add anything to it. The people were invited to enter his rest and enjoy his work. It's important to understand that God gave the Sabbath to his people as a blessing. God set aside a day so that they can rest physically but also that they could be renewed spiritually. They would understand that they're not in complete control, but God is, so they can trust in him. My son Henry, I promise you, makes up, I think, a new game every single day. (laughs) Almost every day after work, Henry is ready to play some new game that he imagined that afternoon. It's kind of like clockwork, Henry will tell me, Dada, let's play this game, and then he'll give me one or two rules. But as time goes on, Henry always adds to the rules. He'll say, Dada, you cannot do this. Dada, you have to do exactly what I'm doing. And halfway through our game, it always looks the same. We're not even playing the same game. (laughs) And what we started out as fun, if I can be honest with you, becomes a bit tedious and tiresome. In some ways, this is exactly what the Pharisees did to the Sabbath. What was once a blessing from God is now a burden governed by a plethora of extra-biblical rules that are now the law of the land. The Sabbath in the book of Exodus is not the same Sabbath that we find here during Jesus' day. John MacArthur was helpful with the historical understanding of the Sabbath in the first century. He said this. He said, almost no area of life was spared from the fastidious Sabbath regulations of the rabbis. That's important. Where did the regulations come from? It came from the rabbis, which were designed to gain God's favor. That's really important to understand. The regulations came from the rabbis, not the Torah, And it was there to gain God's favor. The goal was no longer rest, but gaining favor from God. And the regulations came from the rabbis, mostly found in the Mishnah, a book of oral traditions surrounding the Torah. You see, the Sabbath restrictions included washing clothes, hunting, sowing seeds, plowing a field, walking more than 1,999 steps, 
reaping a harvest and carrying anything heavier than a dry fig. So you couldn't carry your Bibles. That isn't the half of it either. The Pharisees' tradition was excessively strict and very much exceeded the law's intention. It went from a blessing to a burden. And we see this very truth when Jesus' disciples are moving through the grain fields, picking heads of grain. In the Pharisees' eyes, they were desecrating the Sabbath. They had walked too many steps, and they were reaping on a day when they shouldn't be. However, Jesus' disciples, they were doing exactly what the Old Testament commanded them to do. Deuteronomy 23:25 explicitly allowed for this type of action. Nevertheless, in the eyes of the Pharisees, they were doing what was not lawful. Did you hear their question? You are doing what is not lawful. Again, the extra-biblical laws had become the law of the land. Christ Fellowship, I want to say this quickly. We as pastors, we never want to be found requiring something of you that God does not require of you. We never, ever, ever want to be stricter than God. We desperately want to be careful to preach only what God commands. One writer shares our caution when he said this. It's a serious sin to try to bind someone else's conscience with rules that God does not clearly command. It's so true. And this is exactly what the Pharisees were doing by saying what you were doing is not lawful. Well, I want to say that's why you don't see a line in our statement of faith or membership commitment that says you cannot drink or you have to vote for this political party or you can't take part in Halloween. We want you to be free to allow your consciences to do what you feel is most honoring to God. We want to help you think through these matters of conscience with principles from the Bible, but we never want to bind your conscience on matters that are outside explicit biblical commands. We do not want to be like the Pharisees saying, why are you doing what is not lawful when in reality you very well may be honoring the Lord even if it looks different and how we are honoring the Lord. Well, it's interesting to perceive how Jesus answers the Pharisees' accusation. Jesus could have charged the Jews with being trivial, but if he did that, they would have probably come back saying, well, you're just minimizing the law. Well, we see that Jesus, he is a master debater. He carefully points them to a seemingly random passage that makes a profound point. Look with me at verses 25 to 26. He said to them, have you never read what David and those who were with him did when he was in need and hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of presence, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priest, and also gave some to his companions. So Jesus quotes 1 Samuel 21, verses 1 through 6, where David was fleeing from Saul, and his men started to get hungry. He arrived in Nob to find who? Do you all know the story? Who did he find? It actually wasn't Abiathar, but it was who? It was Ahimelech. But Jesus says Abiathar. He doesn't say Ahimelech. So my question is, did Jesus make a mistake? 
Did Jesus misremember history? Does our New Testament right here actually have an era? Because he doesn't say a he doesn't say Ahimelech. He says Abiathar. Well, many antagonists of Christianity will point to this very text to argue that very point. Nevertheless, we know that all of God's word is breathed out by him. There is no mistake. There is no error in our New Testament because God has breathed it out and he cannot make a mistake. He is incapable of making a mistake. So we must know with certainty that even though there might be difficulties in certain texts, there's never anything wrong with scripture. When all facts are known, when everything is interpreted rightly, Scripture will always be, tr be proven to be true. Well, Jesus obviously had a reason for referencing Abiathar rather than Ahimelech. And I think he references Abiathar because he was the most dominant member of his family since his father was murdered shortly after. Abiathar was serving as the high priest during David's reign and would have been closely associated with David. So saying Abiathar is just saying in the time of Abiathar, in the era of Abiathar. I think that's why Jesus says this incident took place in the time of Abiathar, because when they heard his name, they would have immediately gone to this time in history. Now, Jesus does refer to him as a high priest, but he wasn't serving as a high priest at that time. So why does he do that? Well, I think that is easily resolved. We do something very similar when it comes to presidents. You might say, I watched a 2004 episode of President Trump on The Apprentice last night. When someone serves as president, you always refer to him, you always refer to them as president, even if you're looking back at something they did before their presidency. I think that's what's going on here. Abiathar's high priestly title was given to him because that's simply how people knew him. Well, now I want to say it gets a little more difficult, a little more complicated as we attempt to understand just why Jesus uses this Old Testament reference. I will say this, Josiah and I spent a couple hours on Wednesday really wrestling with this. And he was a huge blessing in trying to help me understand, why does Jesus do this? Why does he point to this seemingly, again, random um, text? So the passage in 1 Samuel doesn't seem like it's directly comparable to Jesus' disciples eating grain on the Sabbath. In fact, it's really not. What Jesus' disciples did was not prohibited by the law. They were not breaking any law by eating grain. However, in David's case, according to Leviticus 24.9, only the high priest was allowed to eat the bread of presence. Nevertheless, David and even his companions ate the bread. And the scripture does not at all condemn him. This argument looks pretty obscure. Why does Jesus appeal to this incident? What is the connection? Well, if you look at, back at the Pharisees' question, they asked, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? You see, what's hidden behind this question? There's this presupposition of authority. We have the authority to tell you what to do. Our law reigns in the land. 
And now Jesus comes in with this masterful approach to draw a parallel between David's authority and his. It's not so much on David's action, it's more on David's authority. The parallel that Jesus is drawing is between him and David, specifically between David's authority and Jesus' authority. And I think that's massive to understand. Jesus is saying, David, your hero in the faith in this instance somehow and in some way had authority over the law and you literally did not blink when you read this. Well, the connection is if David had some authority, think about Jesus's authority. Something greater than David is standing before them. Jesus has authority over the Sabbath. He claims that he does. Jesus claims that he's the very Lord of the Sabbath, meaning he has the right to declare how people honor that day. The Pharisees thought they had the authority to command, but Jesus quickly obliterates that assumption. David had some authority. We see that in 1 Samuel. I have all authority, and I tell you what is right and wrong on the Sabbath. Well, another significant point of connection is how David is said to have used his authority. How did he use it? Well, he gave the bread of presence to his companions in need. David used his authority to bless those in his care. And that's precisely what Jesus does in this very passage. Jesus' disciples were hungry on the Sabbath, and Jesus used his authority to meet their very needs. He used the Sabbath for its proper God-given purpose, to bless others. The Pharisees had taken a day of blessing and made it a day of burden. Now Jesus takes their day of burden, and he refashions it into what God has designed it to actually be, a day of blessing. That's why he concludes in verse 27 that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. It was given to Israel for a specific purpose that that might be blessed as they rest in God. And so if you think about verse 27 is the principle, verse 28 helps us understand the authority behind the principle as we talked about. Jesus proclaims his deity by referring to himself as the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus created the Sabbath Thus, he knows what its purposes are for. It was a time for rest for the people of God, really acting as a signpost pointing to a greater rest that would be found in him one day. All right, we're going to take a breath. There was a lot of exegetical heavy lifting right there. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, some of you might be wondering what the significance of the Sabbath is for Christians. You might ask, is the Sabbath that people now assume is on Sunday still binding for Christians? I want to say there has been much disagreement among Bible-believing Christians. But what I believe is that God created the Sabbath to be a blessing for his people that provided them physical rest and pointed them ahead to a greater need for spiritual rest that is now found in Christ. And when we gather on the Lord's day, although I do not believe that's the same thing as the Old Testament Sabbath, there is overlap. There is celebration of the Sabbath rest we have received in Jesus. 
So as I was thinking about this, and I was thinking of ways in which we could apply this, I pray that we view our Sunday as a privilege. Why? Because God's commands are never burdensome. God's commands are unlike the Pharisees' arbitrary rules. Everything he requires of us, including gathering on Sunday, is the very best thing for us. It's one of those greatest privileges that Christians can take part in. And it's the means of grace where we find rest in Christ. Jesus' commands are meant to bless. They're never meant to be a burden. Well, Jesus, presumably, after walking in the grain fields, now finds himself in the synagogue, face-to-face with the Pharisees and their self-righteousness. Was the kingdom of God or the Pharisees' crushing religious system going to prevail? We come to our final point. Jesus challenges their self-righteousness. This is going to be my shortest point. However, I want to highlight a couple of important observations in this text. Let's, together, let's read the text as a whole. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 3. Jesus entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a shriveled hand. In order to accuse him, they were watching him closely to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. He told the man with the shriveled hand, stand before us. Then he said to them, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent. After looking around at them with anger, he was grieved at the hardness of their hearts and told the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and his hand was restored. Immediately the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him and how they might kill him. What we have right here, it's like a scene from a movie. It's honestly better than any Hollywood movie that you might view. Jesus and his disciples, they walk into the synagogue, and there in front of them stands a man with a withered hand. The text does not tell us how this man got there, but I wonder if the Pharisees invited him. I wonder if the Pharisees said, hey, come to the synagogue with us so that we can trap Jesus. We don't know how he got there, but we do know that he was there. And the Pharisees looked on with eagerness, as we read in verse 2, so they might accuse Jesus. It's helpful to understand the context here. The Pharisees' extra-biblical rules were they could not improve anyone's life, so anyone's well-being, unless they were about to die. So they couldn't improve anyone's well-being on the Sabbath unless they were about to die. It's like Matthew Heron working at the ER on a Saturday. Somebody comes in with a broken femur, and he looks at him and said, you're good. You're not going to die today. Come back tomorrow. It's like everything about that is ridiculous. Here again is proof that these extra-biblical regulations made the Sabbath almost unbearable. You have a man here who has a withered hand meaning his hand was probably injured at w- when he was working, and he cannot use it anymore. This poor man has walked into the synagogue seeking help, and the Pharisees, without any care for his physical condition, were thrilled that he was there so that they could trap Jesus. 
I love this scene because once again, it proves that Jesus never backs down from exposing the Jewish religious system. He doesn't say to himself, you know, I'm going to let this one go. You know what? I'm going to have a non-confrontational day today. I'm just going to let them do their thing. I'm going to let the withered, the man with the withered hand go on his way. He does not do that at all. No, Jesus wants to expose their religious system as broken but he also wants to have compassion on the suffering. Well, in verse 3, we read this. He told the man with the shriveled hand, stand before us. If you think about it, he was asking a lot from this man. Jesus was bringing him up to highlight the most vulnerable place on his entire body. He probably hated the sight of his hand, and Jesus says, come up here. And I think the man shows great faith by coming and obeying Jesus. And so then, in verse 4, Jesus asked the Pharisees a question. Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil? To save a life or to kill? This is masterful work by Jesus. Because if they said, well, it is lawful to do good, then what are they doing? They're undermining their very regulations, and they have to look at Jesus and say, well, you're okay, you can heal. But if they said, well, the Sabbath is made to kill, right, it's made for evil, then they were undermining their whole Old Testament. So they, were, they couldn't do anything. They had to just sit there, and that's exactly what happened. Mark writes that they were silent. Jesus exposed their religious system for what it was before everyone, and they had no rebuttal. Well, look with me at the conclusion of this synagogue scuffle. Verse 5 says this, After looking around at them with anger, he was grieved at their hardness of hearts. And he told the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Immediately, the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him how they might kill him. So to land the plane, I want to conclude with one final thought. Secret sin never stalls. Secret sin never stalls. As I was studying this text, I couldn't believe what happened at the end of verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians on how to destroy Jesus. If you all know the Herodians, they were people that sided with Herod. They were people that loved Hellenization and wanted to see it go forth everywhere. The Pharisees, they did not side with Herod. They did not side with Hellenization. So those Herodians were their mortal enemies. But look what happened. They had one common goal. And they came together to do what? To want to destroy Jesus. And Christ Fellowship, I want to say this. We're not at the end of the book of Mark. We're only in chapter 3. The Pharisees have already started plotting Jesus' death. And I thought to myself, how did we get here so quickly? Well, just look with me. Turn with me and look at Mark 2, verse 16. So in Mark 2, verse 16, oh, I'm sorry, Mark 2, verse 6. Look at Mark 2, verse 6 first. The scribes were accusing Jesus in their hearts, and they were blaspheming him. So this was inward accusations. 
How can this man do this? Only God can do this. So they start in chapter 2, verse 6, with these inward accusations. Now look with me at verse 16 of chapter 2. Then the Pharisees verbally started to question Jesus. They started to judge Jesus about who he was spending time with. And then if you move to chapter 2, verse 24, what did they do? Well, we looked at it. They accused Jesus of breaking the law. They said, you're not doing what is lawful on the Sabbath. So now even more accusations are flying around calling him a lawbreaker. Now in Mark chapter 3 verse 6, what do they do? They want to destroy Jesus. Christ fellowship, unrepentant sin never stalls. It only spirals and it gets worse and worse. You have this quick progression of accusation to plotting his assassination. And how do we get there? Well, it's simple. If we do not kill sin, sin will kill us. The way sin works is that it continues to deceive us and harden our hearts so that we don't even realize what we're doing. The Pharisees surely didn't notice their hardness of heart, but it seemed obvious to everyone, especially to Jesus The text says that Jesus was angry by their hardness, by their indifference to grace and mercy, and it grieved his very heart. Christ fellowship, lest we look at the Pharisees in complete disgust, we must be reminded that sin can also wreak havoc in our lives as well. Someone said this, said sin will take you further than you wanted to go, keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and cost you more than you wanted to pay. Let the Pharisees be a warning to us. Secret sin never stalls. So we must diligently confess that sin and kill it before it starts killing us. Well, when someone challenges the system, the system retaliates. Sometimes the system retaliates to the maximum degree, and that's where our text ends today. The religious elite don't want Jesus' silence. No, they want to utterly destroy him. But as we'll see next time, the kingdom of God keeps expanding. In fact, it's interesting, the more that they fight back, the more that the kingdom of God grows. The Pharisees are caught in this type of quicksand. The more they squirm and wrestle and fight back, the more their corrupt systems are consumed. Their plot to destroy Jesus will continue through the rest of Mark's gospel. And a time is coming when they will get their revenge. Or so it appears that they get their revenge. But it turns out that the very act of destroying Jesus at the crucifixion is the means by which God completely and finally destroys their system and vindicates his very name. The system may retaliate. But God will always have the last say. Let's pray.